the classrooms of America. There, your children's lives will be shaped. Through education, you learn how to learn. I simply ask that the right to learning should be given to every child. We must trust students to learn if given the chance. And I want people to value teachers and know their contributions and lift up the profession. If the pursuit of learning is not defended by the educated citizen, Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. Welcome to the 180 Days Education Podcast. I'm Karen Greenhouse, one of your hosts, and Tim Pope is also here. So Tim, say hi. Hello. How's everybody doing? Like I can hear their answer. That's a weird response. But oh well, let's roll with it. It's okay. <laughs> so hello, and I am have the pleasure of introducing um, our guest for today. His name is Ken Shelton. I had the uh, privilege a couple months ago to attend a Google conference, the joys of virtual conferences in the age of COVID, but a, a Google conference and Ken did a presentation um, that I found incredibly fascinating um, and it taught me a great deal and so as Karen and I were talking about topics and then who we would like to talk to, I had recalled that conversation. We reached out to Ken to see if he'd be interested and willing to come chat with us a bit about this idea of, of humanizing education, um, looking at bias and prejudice in the classroom. Ken is also an ed tech expert, certified in a bajillion things from looking at your bio here, Ken, um, and has, has traveled well across the country and internationally doing presentations and, and and training. So Ken, thank you for being willing to join us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So let's start with the first question. And one of the I just I like one of the things that really struck me as I heard you do the Google presentation is really this idea of exactly how thoroughly our cultural paradigms or our cultural prejudice is influence how we teach. Um, and how we interact with students, how we interact with their parents, um, and the community uh, within which we teach. And so I just wanted to open the door and for you to talk a bit about what that means to you and what are the, what does that look like um, in, in schools? That's a great starting question. You know, I think ultimately when it comes to our learning environments, you know, our classrooms, our schools, our districts, our systems, the culture, first of all, the dominant culture is likely to be a significant part of every one of those environments. And one of the things that I always encourage educators to do is to really start to examine how welcome and opening are you through a cultural lens uh, to your classroom, your school, or your district. And, and what I mean by that is it even, it literally even starts off with things like what are the representations on the walls or the materials that you use on the website? You know, are you, are you displaying elements of story, of narratives, of significant, you know, historical figures, writing figures, any, any of those types of uh, areas? Are you showing a cross representation uh, within that, or are you perpetuating a single narrative uh, that is based on the dominant culture? Uh, and then once you understand that, you start to realize how that 
what I would say single narrative tends to manifest itself in the representations of the curriculum. And then, of course, the learning experiences that students have where one of my favorite examples is to ask educators, you know, things like, you know, your concepts of time or 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 actually really here's one that that schools uh, that I'm hoping schools will start to look at more is, uh, you know, what do you define as acceptable um, apparel and even hairstyle? And what you find a lot of cases is that whatever the dominant culture defines as acceptable tends to be adapted and adopted by schools, uh, which is totally exclusionary. And it places a cultural hierarchy on what is deemed to be acceptable and what isn't. So that's interesting to me because um, I was just reading some article about, you know, dress codes in virtual learning environments, right? Do you enforce them? Do you not enforce them? And it almost seems like it would be worse to enforce them that just like, is that how is COVID impacting something like what you're talking about hairstyles and dress code because kids are at home, they're in their own environment. So they're much more likely to be, you know, exhibiting their cultural experience in their own home. They are. And, you know, I know that it, it, uh, you know, the sad part is, you know, here in the States, but I've actually, I've, I've seen it, addressed in uh, other countries that um, I, the, the consistent thing is the other countries that it's, that it is being either talked about or addressed are, are countries that have been uh, the victims of colonization. And that is uh, that they are starting to set laws that you can no longer uh, do the equivalent of police hair, like hairstyles, like you know, what, when you when you think in terms of "quote unquote" professionalism, what is generally deemed to be acceptable in a professional environment? And of course, that that's another cultural lens. But to your point, you know, my thing with with educators is if it doesn't directly correlate to access and opportunity for learning, or doesn't directly correlate to student safety, then why does that policy exist? So, to your point. What is a point beyond just dominance and asserting the power dynamic to tell students what they can and cannot wear in a Zoom call? Like, what's the point of that? Exactly. I agree completely with that. Not even just in Zoom, in general, in a classroom. I've always thought some of those policies are ridiculous. They're absolutely ridiculous. And, and unfortunately, historically speaking, they tend to uh, adversely affect those of us that are from uh, historically oppressed and marginalized backgrounds, because we don't, we, what, what is culturally normalized, let's say for me is not necessarily aligned with the dominant culture. And so therefore, rather than saying, we want to be inclusive and learn more about each other, learn about you, you can learn more about others. It's no, that's not acceptable. So in order for you to be successful, you have to conform to what we want be compliant with the rules. And if you're not, our immediate and default reaction is going to be punitive. And isn't there sir, a sense of projecting? I mean, why do we care about what students wear? Um, because we, it's like, I mean, the excuses you hear, it's a distraction. We want kids to look professional. But doesn't that me as a 50-year-old white cis male projecting what I consider to be professional, what I consider to be distracting or not distracting, and saying, all right, everyone else needs to be like that? Um like, even though I know for myself, like, I wouldn't feel comfortable teaching in anything less than a button-down dress shirt and slacks and dress shoes, but that's because of me, and which is fine for me, but then to project that onto others is where we run into problems, and that, that makes sense, right? It makes total sense. 
I mean, you know, I, I honestly think that the, uh, and keep in mind, in my, from my classroom experience, uh, a lot of the schools that I worked at in the Los Angeles Unified School District, they had school uniform policies. So, um, you know, I, I think there's two parts to that. One is the, all of the, I mean, I, I remember going through the litany of excuses as to why the uniform policies needed to be in place. First, first of all, if you rewind the clock back to when I was in uh, middle school and high school, one of the big pushes for, uh, you know, having a, basically like a, the equivalent of a school site uniform policy was to uh, decrease the likelihood of gang violence on campus. So if you're not wearing colors that you shouldn't be wearing, then it, theoretically it decreases the likelihood of violence on campus. But that was back in the 80s. So, you know, now, you know, in the last 20 years, I mean, I, like I said, the litany of excuses between well, you know, it, it means that the parents won't have to keep up with the latest trends. It means that, you know, the, the, the clothing won't serve as, uh, like you just put, won't serve as a distraction. Um, it means that, you know, we don't have to tell girls that they can't wear spaghetti straps, which, by the way, a lot of the school uniform policies generally tend to be punitive towards girls. They tend to body shame girls. And there is a degree of ableism associated with them as well. OK, so none of that has to do with learning or safety. And, and then I remember it was like, okay, well, and then of course, what do they do to further dehumanize the students? Well, if you come on campus and you're not in school uniform, we're going to uh, make you line up in the hallway in front of your classmates and you're going to have to go to the office and we're going to give you loaners that you're going to have to put on. That are always an embarrassing shirt or... Yeah, all of the above. And so, and of course, you know, for me, I, I, I will admit on this podcast that I was one of those teachers. And I said to the students, you know, in the context of you learning what we're learning, I would encourage you to look up things like certain parts of the ed code. And I would look up some other things around, you know, what what rights do you have as a student? And of course, I knew by me asking those questions, there would be a few students, which there were, that, that started to do their own homework. And, you know, and I do believe in student empowerment. So, you know, for me, I was like, I'm not going to give you the answers, but I'm going to point you in the direction. And I want you to see if you can find and learn what I already know. And of course, it was the fact that in a public school, you cannot force a student to wear a school uniform. And at the schools, what they would usually try to do to, to, to further uh, manipulate and gaslight the students and their families is say, well, you know, if you don't want to have to be in uniform, you have to, uh, you know, you have to get a waiver. And the only way to get a waiver is you have to have like a 4.0 GPA. Oh. Uh, exactly. And I'm like, uh, no, the waiver is the opposite. You sign a waiver that you're waiving your rights and you will be compliant with school uniform. And I said, and further to that point, you know, again, I, I wouldn't, I would reject that. I would reject it vehemently. It has nothing to do with student safety and it had nothing to do with learning. And, uh, and I just remember that I would constantly be berated by the administration at several of the schools because, you know, I would tell the parents, look, you know, if you don't want to have to do this, you don't have to. I'm like, there's no correlation between what your child is wearing and what they're learning. I said, it in fact, and I even shared the whole thing around, you know, girls had to wear uh, skirts that had to touch the top of their kneecaps. And uh, and they always had to wear, everyone had to wear a white collared shirt. And then the skirts could be navy blue or the pants, uh, which were basically chinos, had to be navy blue. And then you were not allowed to wear open-toed shoes and, and, and all those things. And I'm like, 
okay, all of this, like I said, none of this has anything to do with school, but, but back to the original question, you would never find that at many of your, you, I mean, in fact, you could identify school uniform policy and enforcement based on zip code of school. Oh, that's a good point. I want to circle back because I, I could talk about this forever. Having being old enough to have taught my first teaching job in a school where one of the teachers would stand in the corner of the hallway and make the girls kneel down so that and with his uh, ruler so he could measure their skirts to make sure that they were a sufficient distance above the floor or whatever. Um, That's horrible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. That was back back in the day. I don't know if I've seen that for a long time, but I have. I did witness it. But the, what I want to get back to is you had at the beginning the answer to the first question. You talked about um, like even visually in the classroom, what are the messages being sent? What are the stories being told in a classroom um, in terms of the dominant culture versus the representation of students that uh, are part of that school community? What would be your response? Um, now, know that Karen and I are both math teachers or math educators, so you're going to get a little bias on this one. Um, but uh, the response to the person who says, well, math is math or science is science. What do you mean there has to be cultural representation in a math classroom? Isn't algebra algebra? I'm so glad you asked that question, because one of the things I like to bring up is even something as simple as as do you know where the concept of zero was developed? And do you have a representation of that? Do you know that our math system, in fact, here's one here, you, you two will appreciate this. So my primary subject area that I, that I, I, I taught early in my career is, uh, I started off in English, then social studies, and then in a technology uh, lab. So when I taught social studies, one of the things that would come up pretty much every year for the, for several years was seventh grade world history, um, two things. So it's in the state standards uh, that you have to learn about Islam. And I knew, you know, after my first year teaching where I got some parent complaints, I just, I could pretty much anticipate that I would get, you know, more parent complaints about, you know, teaching children Islam. Now, of course, this is after uh, September 11th. And so, you know, I, I, I would say, okay, you know, I know they're going to complain. No big deal. Now, the good thing is I had a great relationship with the principal at that school. So he and I were, he and I hit it off right from the beginning. I think, uh, honestly, I think a big reason why we did is because um, when he found out that I played uh, football in college and he told me that he did as well, I'm like, oh, then, you know, our relationship going to be way different. He knew he could talk to me and demand things from me very differently than pretty much most of my colleagues at the school and that he and I could, you know, identify things and demands that were placed on us as college athletes that could easily transfer to our collective work as educators. Uh, and so I remember when the, when the parents would complain, I would, I would say, okay, well, first of all, it's in the state standards and then you two will appreciate this. And this goes to the culture piece. I said, you know, you don't want your child learning about Islam. I'm like, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if your child was learning um, math using an Arabic numeric, numerical system? How would you feel about that? And then, of course, the parents are like, no, absolutely not. I don't want them learning Islam, and I don't want them learning that. <laughs> See, told you. And so, of course, you know, and I, I, would, I would laugh on the inside. I'm like, that right there is one of the main reasons why you have to understand uh, and have to have the right degree of cultural representations because they, have, they, they clearly didn't know. 
And I'm like, you know, and you know, when you get it, and again, when you get into the maths and sciences and really any subject matter, I mean, I could go down a list of significant uh, scientific achievements that have been made by women that have been made by people of color, that have been made by lots. But if you were to go into a science classroom, what are the predominant representations? It's usually uh, the white male scientists. Right. And see, that's just the start of, okay, if I don't see myself reflected in the content, then how am I going to, how am I going to envision myself as a mathematician or as a scientist? How am I going to understand that many of the things that we benefit from now are the uh, cumulative contributions across a wide swath of country representations race representations, gender identity representations, you know, it's across the board. So it's not just simply learning, you know, learning the concepts of math or any concepts of science. It's learning, learning those concepts within the, what I would say, the cultural context of, of the representations as well. And so one of the things, and again, I'm kind of math biased right now, but I I teach at Drexel university and my students um, were, were, doing a class right now called Diagnosing Student Thinking. But one of the articles they just read was all about how students come into your class and they know a lot of math, but they may not know the math that is the process or the skill we're teaching them, right? They know math from their real world experiences. And so then when they come into our class and we're forcing them into this, I guess, the norm, cultural norm, it looks like they are not good at math. But if you actually ask them, you know, if you had to go to the store and buy this, what's the tax? They could do it very quickly in their head because that's their ex- lived experience. And so how do you get teachers to, because let's face it, the textbooks are definitely not addressing a lot of the culture that the kids are coming to the classroom with. So how do you help teachers bring that into the classroom if all they have is these textbooks and these resources? So I'm glad you asked that because I actually, early in my career, before I became a full-time teacher, I did several long-term substitute assignments in Southeast LA, and uh, they were um, Algebra 2. Okay. Yeah, you're going to love this one. So one of the things I used to do with the students was, of course, by by the time the students got to me, again, this was predominantly eighth grade, um, I would say at least half, if not a little bit more than half, they didn't necessarily have a favorable view of math. Sure. That's very typical. And uh, it is. And I, and I, I remember, you know, my, my favorite stories to share around that was a, I, I would always say to the students, you know, I did it for a year and a half. Um, now, now full disclosure, I already had a degree of credibility with the students because I had already substituted at that school before I had done a long-term for a full year, I taught art, uh, and then I also did uh, physical education. And so the art class was the one where, you know, that was my first hook with many of the students in the math, because I used to say, you know, math and art are like first cousins. You got to see, you got to see the math in the art and you got to see the art in the math. And I'm like, and, and, and it's, it's just ways I said, math is, math is another language. It's the language of numbers, but it's still a way of communicating something. And there's still a way to tell stories doing it. Uh, and I think the big hook with the students around teaching art was the fact that I literally, I said, we're going to learn art through a social justice lens. Because I'm like, that's the representation of you. And so then when I ended up teaching the math, I was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I I would tell the students this each semester. I'm like, "Uh, I want you to do me a favor. Let's make a deal. I said, 
What would you say if I were to say to you that I'm going to convince you that not only will you like math, not only can you be good at math, but math might actually be your favorite subject. If Can you give me a week? <laughs> and of course, you know, these are eighth graders and they're like, oh, all right, Mr. Shell, all right, you're, you're cool, but we're not, you're not that cool. And I'm like, ah, give me a week, give me a week. And so one of my favorite things I would do to your point um, is I would literally say, okay, I'm going to take algebra and we're going to simplify it to the following. Algebra, essentially algebra is utilizing um, formulas, if you will, or algebraic equations to calculate large volumes of numbers in, a, in an efficient capacity. I'm like, it is an oversimplification of it, but, but let's just, let's start with there. And so then I would apply a local cultural context to learning algebra. So the interesting thing is when I share the story with educators, I, I do a, a, a quick assessment of the room to watch which educators cringe when I tell the story and which ones are nodding their head in, you know, the nonverbal affirmation. And so one of the things I did, did with the students to get them hooked is I'm like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We need to get some data and we need to put together some algebraic equations around the data. And so in that area, I had the students do all of the following uh, over the course of the first couple of days is I said, OK, here's what we're going to do. When you go home, I divided the, the class into, you know, varying two, uh, three different groups, the walkers, the bike riders and the car riders. So when you leave school, if you walk, ride a bike, get a car. Perfect. I need you to do all the following. I need you to count how many liquor stores you go by from school to home. I need you to count how many military recruitment centers you go by from school uh, to home. And then I also need you to count how many healthy food stores you go by from school to home. Let's, 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 let's normalize or let's standardize the definition of the above. And so, of course, the definition is like a liquor store was a store you can purchase snacks and alcohol. Military recruitment center was anywhere that there is a, a storefront, if you will, or a, a, a dedicated space for you to go enlist in the military. And I told them that, you know, when I was fin when I finished high school, that I actually had gotten my uh, congressional nomination, my interview for the United States Air Force Academy, uh, my dad's side of the family, I'm a military family. And I said, there's a difference between going to a service academy and enlisting. I was going to go to a service academy. And then I said, then healthy food stores are, you know, we define them as a store of which you can go into the store and buy fresh fruits or fresh vegetables on a daily basis. So they calculated, they got all those numbers. And I said, okay, now I need you, for the walkers, I need you to count how many steps you take from school to home. For the bike riders, I need you to count how many 360 degree, 60 degree revolutions of the drivetrain from school to home. And for the uh, car riders, I just need to count how many blocks. And I said, and all the numbers are going to be different, but we're going to calculate, uh, you know, the, the mean. And stuff. And so I had him start doing this stuff. And I'm like, uh, newsflash, you all are doing math already, by the way. And of course, kids like, no. And so I had him do all this. And so then I said, okay, now that we get our numbers, we started, we figured out a formula around how many steps it takes to get, you know, steps, drive uh, 360 revolutions or blocks for each one of those three distinct um, identifiers we use. And I had the kids develop an equation to calculate that. Then they had the numbers. Then I said, now we're going to apply a social justice lens to this. I'm going to have you go on Google Maps and we're going to pick a random school. I said, I have an idea of a school that we could pick. And I want you to just join in any random direction, northwest, south or east, uh, and go the exact same distance, either blocks, 
uh, or, or just, you know, uh, calculating mileage from that school to a fictitious home or to a, a location from that school. And you're going to go down to street level and you're going to see if you can count the same thing. So the very first zip code I had them go to was 90210. There you go. I was going to say, it's got to be that one. <laughs> All right. So now that's a reference for those of us of a certain age, get that reference right away. Yes. For those that don't, that is a zip code. What is one of, I believe there's three. That's one of the zip codes in Beverly Hills. Um, and so then I had them do that. And I said, I want you to see if you can count how many liquor stores, military recruitment centers and healthy food stores. And of course, you know, once the students started going on their computers and started doing that, you know, I, it was it only took about 30 to 45 seconds before you start hearing the grumblings. And I'm like, yeah, tell me again how math isn't important in your life. I said, now we're going to learn more by SIPA here, something you all need to understand. Cities are divided into grids. Uh, part of those grids are zip codes. A series of zip codes is called a zone. There are these things called zoning laws. I want you to look that up. Now, you have elected officials. You have state assembly member, a state senator, a city council member. Guess who determines what uh, what those zoning laws look like and what you can and cannot do within those zones? Now, the bigger question is, why is it that you don't have access to the same volume of healthy food stores here as you would over there? And I had them do several other zip codes. Uh, and then I said, that's all a byproduct of math, by the way. Because they can determine the frequency and the number. You know, you get a business license, you, ha you can operate a business, but that business can only operate in areas where it is zoned for you to operate. That is not just some random thing. You just did it yourself. That's what I call real life, real world math. And that's exactly what we're going to do. And I remember I had them learn uh, things that, you know, should be mandatory curriculum. Unfortunately, it isn't. Is around like personal finance. I'm like, okay, so here's another example. Say you get $100 for your birthday and you want to go get a new pair of shoes, I would argue that you should spend 50 of that on whatever you want, put 50 away. You need to understand this thing called compounding interest. You need to understand how the stock market works. Technically, the stock market is uh, what I is I identify the stock market as government sanctioned gambling because that's technically what it is. I'm like, but there's a way to have the odds in your favor. And I even had them do things like how many of you wear Nike shoes? And then of course, a bunch of them, I'm like, go and look up NKE, which is a ticker symbol. What would happen if you were to put $50 in, in Nike stock five years ago, how much would it be worth now? And so the whole idea around that was providing a cultural localized context to the content to where I didn't even use the textbook. Now, one could argue, did you do anything that was closely aligned with the standards? And I could say, um, if you look at the standards in a linear capacity, no. But if you look at the standards holistically, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I love that. That's sort of how I like to think that I also taught. But there's so many teachers, and I, again, like getting away from just math, there's so many teachers that are afraid to veer from the textbook or the curriculum that is forced on them. They have to follow the pacing and all that stuff, or it's extra work. Like I, as a teacher, how do I know that I'm picking the right thing? So how do you help teachers, educators think that way and change the way they're teaching to be culturally responsive? Right. I mean, I think the first step is to actually, you know, ask the question, how well do you know your students beyond their name and their number that's in the roll book? Yeah, that's the first question. And and that means that you have to operate from, you know, a degree of inquiry and a degree of discovery and say, OK, I'm going to forego the usual 
garbage that we're told to do at the beginning of the school year. And I have to be clear that I did that garbage for the, my first few years, and it's because of the way we were taught to do it. We, I, all of us, yeah. So I'm, I'm not exempt from from that. You know, I, I acknowledge that that there are a lot of things that I did early in my career that I look back upon now and I cringe at, but ultimately. Uh, it's why I know the difference between what I did then and what I did later in my career that was far more uh, responsive to the needs of the students and far more appropriate for their the context of their learning environment. But I think the first step is to really get to know your students beyond their name and their number. And, and honestly, uh, operate from a degree of what I call cognitive humility. There's a lot you can learn from your students. You might know your content area, uh, you know, in some cases better than your students, but there's a whole lot of things that your students know that you don't, and especially in relation to the communities that they live in. But ultimately, the whole idea with a teacher is, first of all, interrogate and examine the standards. Who are they standardized to? You know, that's the first thing. Anything that's standardized, uh, my argument is anything that is standardized is designed to not only socially stratify students, but it rewards a specific demographic, which is an upper middle class cisgender white male. Most standardized tests and most standardized measures are based on that as the as the, the you know, the standard, if you will. And so then all of the rest of us who don't fit that demographic are constantly trying to adjust or have to adjust uh, how we represent our learning and how we engage in learning to be aligned with that. Now, I recognize that there are things that, you know, which it's arguable, there are things that kids need to know. I, I, I think there's a lot of things that kids need to know by the time they turn 18 that aren't taught in school, like, for example, American civics, which should be required courses, but it is not financial literacy that uh yeah i mean look i loved math growing up but i would argue that a student learning how to uh you know manage a bank account uh manage debt versus income manage and understand you know compounding interest and savings and all those things that's far more valuable than calculus stephen levitt the uh, author of freakonomics um did a podcast and it's his cause right now about re-envisioning high school mathematics education in terms of um, what do you need to know to be successful. And there's a lot more emphasis on data analysis, which is essentially your story about kids looking at the map and the number of liquor stores. I mean, that's getting to looking at data and data analysis is much more important. And this is gonna, as the pre-calculus teacher who just finished teaching a lesson on the properties of logarithms, who cares? Exactly, I'm with you on that, totally. I think statistics, computer science, and financial literacy, man, I think those should be required. I agree. I love, I did, I love statistics in college. I, I really enjoyed that class. And of course, the sad part is that, you know, if you were to do a search of high schools that offer statistics, um, sadly, that course is, is a, there's going to be a zip code median income uh, that will make that the results of that research predictable, unfortunately. Well, and I remember fighting my oldest daughter when uh, she finished Algebra 2. And so they were like, you need to go into pre-cal. And she's an artist. And I'm like, you don't need to go into pre-cal. Take statistics. That's going to be much more helpful for you. Yep. And they fought me. They were like, no, she's got to go to pre I'm like, no, I'm not letting her. <laughs> you know, So it was, a, it was a battle with the school. She's crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. And so, you know, back to your question, I think for teachers, it, it, it really is, it's really examining what are, uh, what is normalized for the ways that we engage in meaningful pedagogy and what is normalized in the content that we teach and how might you navigate within those 
restrictions, but make it to where it is more empowering and accessible uh, to the students. And that means things like, you know, as I shared earlier, things like don't look at the standards as a linear timeline over the course of the year. I didn't do that with social studies. And again, full disclosure, that was at the school where the principal and I had a great relationship. I was able to identify four major overarching themes, which were conflict, um, migration, um, colonization, and I can't remember the fourth. Um, oh, um, it was um, um, advancement slash achievement. And then we looked at, we didn't look at history as a linear thing. We looked at it as, you know, what are contemporary examples of that? How does that apply to, uh, you know, world history in, let's say, the 17th century? What are contemporary manifestations of, you know, conflict? How does that apply to, you know, the 18th century? And it was like this, um, the best way I can describe it was like, we're weaving a quilt. So we're going in and out of the present and the past, but, but it still was all based on those four major overarching themes so that the students could connect Here's why learning something that happened 300 years ago is important to understand because of what's happening right now. And that was not following the standards in a linear capacity. Yeah. And I, I love that because that's how I also just, again, at math, how I try to tell my, you know, they're like, well, I don't have enough time. I have to cover this in two days and I have to do this. And they are thinking very linearly. And I like, but if you focus from a problem based where it's pulling in multiple standards at one time, you're going to cover everything in the course of the year, just not in that linear path. But they, they're so there's almost fear on a teacher's part of breaking the the rules. Like, so the culture of the school or the culture of the district is you must follow this linear path, no matter what subject you're teaching. And teachers are, I think, feeling stifled if they want to go past that, because they then get observed and, and evaluated based on that. Well, so you're absolutely right. And that's why I stress the fact that, that at that particular school, uh, I had a great relationship with the principal and I had a degree of, of latitude to do that. But then I worked at schools where it was the exact opposite. And so, you know, I, I would say for any teachers listening to the podcast, you know, one of your, uh, you know, since we're talking numbers, one of your most effective arguments is going to be use the data. Use the data and say, okay, you know, this is how we've been doing it. How many of our students are uh, are learning and achieving at a level that is acceptable to them, their families, and us? Uh, have we identified any potential gaps? Um, you know, I, 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 I always caution against using, uh, again, anything that's standardized. But, but, you know, ultimately for me, it's like, look, if it – if it can improve and increase the likelihood that a student is going to be fully engaged, immersed, and empowered by the content, then to me, that should be the default. I wouldn't encourage a teacher to get into an argument, but ultimately, I would encourage a teacher to say, look, you know, if you were to ask all of your students, do they feel, again, engaged and empowered and involved in the content based on the way you're teaching it with going standard by standard, linear, uh, and the, if the answer is no, then then there's your argument to change it. And if you get pushback from an administrator, then, I mean, I, you got to ask the administrator, look, then what are we doing here? Yeah. You know, and, and, I, and I, I don't have the answer. I, I just... 
you know, and one of the things I always encourage educators to scrutinize what speakers say, because a lot of times I've listened to speakers that they'll bring up things that I'm like, uh, yeah, what they're talking about would never have worked in any of the schools that I worked at or any of the districts that I work with. But, you know, I think it's it, ultimately I think it's in a, it's a way for us to do a degree of self-examination and hold a mirror up to ourselves as educators to say, am I truly reaching all of my students? Am I truly empowering them? And in some cases, am I even inspiring them? I mean, there's so many kids that that I, I I just believe, and I know it even from my own experience that when they get sh- they get taught and shown content that is different than what they've had to endure, and you just see the look on their faces, and you see the investment in like, okay, this is different. This is something that's cool. This is something I can directly relate to. That's that's there's power in that, and and that does require. Again, interrogating things that are normalized, things that are that are culturally normalized that don't necessarily work for all students. Yeah. So I, I, I want to pivot a, a little bit. So after you gave your presentation, you referred to a book, and then I was intrigued, so I bought it, um, Whistling Vivaldi by Dr. Claude Steele, yes. whose name I had recognized. And then I realized as I got into like chapter two that he was a social psychology major at the University of Michigan while I was a psychology major. So I'm like, I had his class. I was like, ah, there we go. <laughs> but in his book, he talks about cultural expectations and that when uh, people internalize cultural expectations it actually has an adverse effect on their performance so i was i was going to ask if you'd be willing to share a bit about how that applies to students in schools because i really found that fascinating it is and that, that so you know for for the audience the the, the book is uh, you know whistling vivaldi by dr claude Steele, and and the the whole idea is is understanding uh stereotype threats and so 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 basically what you're saying and it ties in with the earlier question around you know representation you know one of the things that I would love to see dismantled uh, among the prevailing narratives in education are identifying students based on gender, socioeconomic status, and race uh, as to what they can be good at and what they cannot be good at. So, for example, at my last school, one of the um, consistent arguments that I would get into for my final four years working at that school was with several of the counselors because I taught in a technology academy. And um, at the time, at one point, it was 95% male students. And so, of course, you know, going to the stereotype threat uh, and how it victimized the students, the counselors would literally say to me, girls don't do tech, they do humanities. And so then tying that in with Dr. Claude Steele, it's like, okay, so what were the counselors exposed to? Well, they were not exposed to girls in the sciences and the math and the engineering and anything along those lines. So therefore, if I don't see it and I don't believe it and I'm told that it doesn't exist, I will then internalize that thinking and it will affect not only the choices that I make, but in the case, in this case, it was the choices that the counselors made and their subsequent actions where they projected that same stereotype thread onto the students at the school. Yeah. Wow. And so then then you begin to internalize that and say, okay, well, that's not for me, so therefore I won't pursue it. And it's it, it's similar to, you know, the whole idea around 
I mean, you could pick a, across the board any type of any. It's essentially any situation uh, or circumstance of which a particular stereotype has been applied to a group as a whole, and then the individual allows that stereotype to influence any choice that they make, despite maybe even having an interest in it. Well, what I like about the book is it actually looked at it through both ways. So the way you're articulating, um, which is which is incredibly valid, but also the pressure on the quote dominant culture. So, for example, if I'm a, like the male who feels like oh, I have to be good at technology or I have to be good at math because I'm a male and that's what we're supposed to be good at. You're right. And he did some experiments he did, which was just fascinating um, about how people perform more poorly at the things that stereotypically they're supposed to be better at because they feel this cultural pressure that, oh, shoot, I have to be good at this because I'm, I'm a guy um, and or, or I'm tall, so I have to be good at basketball because I'm tall and you're supposed That's to be right. good at basketball. Uh, so to look at it through both in terms of people that are being shut out of those professions or those possibilities or, those, or that, that education because of those stereotypes and then people who are being forced into things they don't necess- that aren't necessarily who they are um, because of those same stereotypes. I just to look at it through both lenses, I found I found really fascinating. I, I agree with you 100 percent. And you're absolutely right. And I will even say that, you know, I um, I could have very easily been the victim of that, um, you know, as far as, you know, when I was in school, especially in uh, middle school, going to high school, where I, I was fortunate enough to be very skilled at quite a few sports. But, you know, my father, you know, major credit to my dad, just on so many levels was like, you know, you cannot rely on your skills in sports because eventually they will diminish. And he was like, you know, he was constantly um, pushing both myself and my uh, one of my younger brothers uh, around, you know, he demanded excellence on, on the court, on the field and in the classroom. And of course, back then, you know, the, the, the stereotype threat was, well, you need sports to get to college because somehow some way you're not capable of academics. And I remember I had a number of, of my classmates that were like, yeah, I'm just going to take the low level classes because, you know, I'm not expected to do well uh, and I'm not capable of doing well in the high, you know, the honors or the advanced placement classes. But but sports is going to be my way out anyway. And it, it really is this whole examination on who am I as an individual and what are my interests and am I going to allow any of those particular uh, self-imposed or externally imposed barriers to inhibit my desires to pursue those interests. And I, I, I assume this is connected, but, you know, the, the tracking that happens in education and I, you know, I work with a lot of teachers and a lot of them will tell me, well, my low level students can't do that. So I don't give them that. Like, so they don't give them real world problem based kind of thinking because they can't do it. So that's a stereotype that's limiting mm-hmm. and assuming students can't do something. Yeah. There, that's a, that's a prime example. And, and that's why the beauty of, of, of the book uh, you know, it's across a myriad of of, of um, what I would say identity categories. Uh, it's ability, uh, it's race, gender identity. It's all it's all of the above. And um, you know, Karen, you just brought up you brought up another one that it's just I just I reject that. Like well, I reject it too. But it is. Oh man, it's so annoying to me. Like, well, they're not capable. I'm like, according to whose measure? So I teach teachers who are getting a master's and, and the, I get this a lot. And a lot of what they have to do, they have to we experience something and they have to go try it in their classroom. And they're like, well, my kids aren't going to be that great at it. And they'll come back going, wow, 
they really surprised me. <laughs> I'm like, no kidding. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, yeah, it's amazing to me. Just the stereotypes in the yeah. I, I just I, you know I think you know in that in that context, Karen. You know my I will say my default now for sure is um, support and growth of teachers because you know you don't know what you don't know, and it's a it's um and quite frankly it's um it's a byproduct of of a bias I love to talk about called the Dunning Kruger effect, and so I think with teachers it's like okay. That might be your initial thinking, but let's try it. What harm is there in trying? You know, because um, because because I've seen I've seen the reaction to that of like you know the guilt and the shame. Like, how dare you say that? What is wrong with you? Yeah, you know, it, it's not so much what's wrong with you as it is. You know what? Let's try something new. Are you open to learning something new? And now if the answer is no, I'm not. Well, then that's another way. Then that that requires a different approach, but. You know, I, I always tell teachers that that you know one of the best thing, best moments you could have as a teacher is when you relinquish some degree of that control and power, and then you share with students that you want them to you know essentially wow you, and, and then when they do, and then what really happens is not only they wow you, but they actually have wowed themselves and recognize that wow I actually am capable of more than you know um, what I have been inundated with whether it's through what I call deficit based uh, um, messaging or denied access to you know higher level classes or higher level thinking I mean I it's just we have to encourage each other to explore and to be able to empower our students um, as the default. So I was just going to share the whistling, the whistling Vivaldi story because it's just fascinating. So great story. The story is so as a, as a man of color, um, and this was the author, right, Ken? Was it the author telling a story about someone else or about himself? And that I don't remember. I, I believe it's I believe it's about someone else, if I remember correctly. So uh, a man of color was talking about he would walk he walked down the street and. Um, people would, you know, cross the street, avert their eyes, all the stereotypes and assumptions um, and, and uh, stereotypical threats that would be uh, projected onto him were intimidating. And they, he decided he would start walking and he would start whistling Vivaldi, classical music from Vivaldi as he would walk. And then that disconnect um, help people sort of eliminate the stereotype because then it was something like, okay, this is comfortable, something I know. And the thing that cracks me up is like, he knew more about classical music than any of the people he walked by because how many people would even recognize it was Vivaldi, but they would recognize, but they would recognize, okay, this is classical music. So then he became someone who was cultured and therefore not a threat. Um, and so I just, I, I found that a, a fascinating story and like how true that would be. I mean, I'm just picturing myself, unfortunately, in the position of that pedestrian, I'm like, you know what, darn right. If someone was whistling classical music, I would have a totally different assumption about that person, regardless of what they looked like. Um, anyway, so I just found that to be, uh, enlightening. Yeah. It's, it's such a good book. It's such a, it, it really, it provides a mirror, uh, to a reader around, you know, how do we react to, um, how do we react in situations where we're around others that don't share the same, uh, degrees of cultural identity as us? What are the, um, 
adaptation and in some cases even survival mechanisms that some of us do to be able to navigate spaces of which you know we uh don't represent the dominant culture why why do we allow uh our initial assumptions i.e our initial stereotype threats to uh be inhibitors towards learning more about um you know about others you know all of those things it it, it that's why i had that book in that session i mean there, i could recommend a whole laundry list of books but but you know it's it's really fascinating to analyze that and that's why i always ask you know i always ask people in general especially when i do that workshop have you ever been in a situation where you have had to modify something uh that is part of your core identity to be deemed acceptable by others oh good question and we are wrapping up on an hour, although I knew I was going to like Ken's session because the music he was playing as everyone was logging in was Prince. And so I'm like, all right, this, this is going to be That's right. <laughs> this is, this is going to be an enjoyable <laughs> session. Um, so I, I want to thank you, Ken, for being willing to take the, this time and, and share your, your thoughts and your experience with us. It's been uh, very informative for me. And I actually kind of want to have you back because I was on your website and reading about your ed tech specialization and your, you know, the achievement gap and the digital divide. And that's what I really, I specialize in ed tech too. So I was like, oh, so we might need to have you back for that conversation. I will happily spend another hour chatting with you all for our own benefits and the benefits of your listeners. I really appreciate, uh, you know, the opportunity to spend what, what will be an hour, but it seems like we've, we've been hanging out for only five minutes because we've gone into so much depth with, uh, with everything we've discussed. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And um, yeah, I mean, if you'll have me back, count me in for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ken. And thank you everyone for listening. We will um, have in the show notes links to the book and Ken's website and anything else that came up. I think I have the, what is it? The Dunning Kruger effect. Yes. Have to look that one up, but I'll have a link to that as well. So thank you everyone. Please make sure to check out our website. Leave us any questions or notes um, about this episode or future episodes you would like to hear. Um, and thank you. Thank you again, Ken. Thanks, Tim. There will always be those who scoff at intellectuals, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.